Chapter Twenty Four, The Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording by Rolder. Autobiography, Memories and Experiences, Volume One, by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Twenty Four about this time complications with england were arising our golden hour for ending at once both the war and slavery had passed the leaden hour had come we were compelled to support the war which the president had made our only hope of eradicating slavery the root of discord there was danger that this hope might be lost through the diversion of patriotic wrath from slavery to a traditional foreign enemy even gladstone and lord john russell had accepted seriously the instructed protest of our foreign ministers that the condition of slavery in the several states will remain just the same whether it the war for the union succeed or fail the confederates in england were utilizing the diplomatic declarations of our government favorable to slavery confirmed by its actions and by our anti-slavery protest the anti-slavery leaders in america were in constant correspondence with george thompson and other friends in england who like ourselves had felt sure that slavery would certainly be destroyed by the war it was at this juncture that it was proposed to me to give lectures for a few months in england in february eighteen sixty three my wife wrote in her diary at concord now before me wendell phillips came to me to ask if i would consent to my husband going to europe to lecture and persuade the english that the north is right reluctantly i consented feeling that as he was exempt from serving as a soldier i had no right to prevent his being of service in some other way the proprietor of the commonwealth agreed to give him a thousand dollars for two letters per week phillips stearns garrett smith thomas mott h w longfellow edward clark mr baker r hallowell eliza wright the parker fraternity and the new bedford society raised seven hundred dollars it is probable also that my wife thought that the strain of work on me was too great while editing the commonwealth i was preaching every sunday and lecturing one or two nights of every week i had said my say in america i had borne my testimony as the quakers say in all the towns of ohio in every important town of new england and in the chief cities of new york in philadelphia and surrounding places and in washington i had written innumerable articles and letters in papers and magazines and my two books on the crisis were in wide circulation it appeared therefore a fair time for me to go for a few months to represent the moral and political situations as viewed by american anti-slavery people emerson did not like my going but gave me letters of introduction to carlyle and others i carried a letter from george w curtis to browning and many from william lloyd garrison to the anti-slavery leaders mr and mrs george stearns sent by me a life-size bust of john brown for victor Hugo. in my diary on the steamship city of washington i find the following paragraphs april twenty one 
i repaired to the library a good deal and for the first time made good acquaintance with victor hugo to whom i am carrying a bust of john brown the execution of john brown was yet in suspense when victor hugo declared that it would be washington slaying spartacus and when it occurred victor hugo drew with his pencil a sort of fog through which were barely visible a gallows with a dim human form hanging from it beneath the picture was written simply the word x i have brought along john stuart mill's new book on liberty published in boston the day i left it is a book of wonderful truisms of startling commonplaces in reading it one feels that such a book should be in the course of college study everywhere so axiomatic are the laws it states and yet there is scarcely a state on earth that would not be revolutionized by a practical adoption of its principles mr mill's views of social and individual liberty are in the direction of those stated by william von humboldt in his sphere and duties of government the grand leading principle says humboldt towards which every argument unfolded in these pages directly converges is the absolute and essential importance of human development in its richest diversity he also says that the end of man or that which is prescribed by the eternal or immutable dictates of reason and not suggest by vague and transient desires is the highest and most harmonious development of his powers to a complete and consistent whole mr mill taking his high position lays his cornerstone of society to wit that the only purpose for which power can be rightly exercised over any member of an civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others his own good either physical or moral is not sufficient warrant to interfere with his independence with regard to mormonism he maintains that society has no right to interfere with polygamy so long as it's understood that the woman and men of voluntary parties to the system in london there had been formed an active league of sympathizers with the union cause in america the leading spirit of which was peter alfred taylor member of parliament for leicester the society received me with open arms and soon after my arrival mr and mrs taylor invited me to make aubrey house my headquarters while lecturing in the interval before my lectures could begin came derby day it seemed my only opportunity for witnessing the annual event for which parliament adjourns i never had any interest in racing but was eager to see the english masses i reached the place soon after nine and found the scene amusing but by eleven i had done all the side-shows and the gypsies and did not care to wait another hour to see the derby on my walk to the station for london a mile away i met a long procession of wagons laden with people on their way to the race-ground they hailed me they chuffed me and shouted with laughter i was actually too green to understand their merriment until i reached the station it was locked up and silent all had gone to the derby next day i read in a paper that amusement was caused by one solitary individual who just before the derby was seen making a bee-line for london 
while i was staying in aubrey house a number of ladies of high position gathered there and formed an association for the circulation of leaflets and essays relating to the struggle in america among these ladies were madame venturi nee ashurst and her sister the wife of james stansfield m p mrs and the misses biggs mrs william malson mrs frank malson the most distinguished of these ladies was miss frances power cobb this lady was well known to me by her important work on intuitive morals and she had long been associated in the minds of american liberals with theodore parker she was a lady of irish family and in her face there were the fresh colour and the expression of sensibility and good-natured humour characteristics of the well-bred irish lady although more rationalistic than dr james martineau was then she was his warm friend and i always believed enlarged his theology for she was a woman not only of general culture but thoroughly instructed in the problems of theology at the beginning of may she brought me the manuscript of her pamphlet the red flag in john bull's eyes the red flag was made up of all the cries about negro insurrection rapine horrors of st domingo with which confederate sympathizers were seeking to enrage john bull miss cobb had not only studied all the history of the negro in the west indies but carefully collected all the facts concerning the conduct of the slaves during our war with power and accuracy her pamphlet tore the red flag to tatters the efforts made by the confederates in england at this time were desperate they had as their organ the london times which was selecting with great pains every american item which might irritate english pride it even took up the insults of george francis train as utterances of the representative american i was promptly raised to the dignity of an emissary at a meeting in exeter hall may eighteen sixty three tom hughes was listened to but when i was introduced as a slaveholder's son a tremendous confusion filled the house and it was several minutes before i could get a quiet audience at about this time w m evarts arrived in london to confer with the law officers concerning captured males i met him at a breakfast given by lord houghton to lord and lady dufferin all being warm supporters of the anti-slavery side in america on the invitation of edward dicey and friends of his at cambridge i attended commemoration there mr evarts had been invited by the same gentleman and we were guests of henry fawcett and leslie stevens who had a suite of rooms in trinity hall our two hosts were already known beyond the limits of the university as men who would make their mark on the country it was i believe principally fawcett and leslie stephen whose independence had given trinity hall a reputation for radicalism at one of these dinners there to which our host had invited some brilliant young men various stories artistically adorned were told about the two men one of these related that an old tory squire had brought his son to enter college and preferred trinity hall where his ancestors had been educated but on arrival he had heard sad rumours that trinity hall had become a nest of radicals 
learning that its chief residents were Fawcett and Leslie Stephen, of whom he had never heard. The squire repaired to their rooms with his son, and was politely received. When he had told them of his desire to enter his son at Trinity Hall, and of the dreadful radicalism said to be prevalent there, the two scholars managed to reach an understanding. Then Fawcett gravely informed the inquirer that it was true that some of them had at one time been rather infected with extreme opinions, but now, he added, we have greatly moderated our views, and shall be contented simply with the disestablishment of the church and the abolition of the throne. The story was, of course, followed by a description of the squire's rush out of the building dragging his son. The impression made upon me by Fawcett is ineffaceable. The pathetic sentiment excited by seeing that noble head, with its beautiful blonde hair, and the handsome countenance whose every feature was so quick with intelligence, save, alas, the sightless eyes, presently vanished before his cheerfulness and a play of thought which forbade pity. He comprehended our situation in America, even its details, with a completeness that surprised Evarts as well as myself. The mischance by which an accidental discharge of his father's gun when they were out shooting had extinguished both eyes, and the courage with which he had assured his parents in their agony that the blindness should make no difference in his career have often been related but my friendly relations with him while he was in parliament and to the end of his life enabled me to remark a more complete fulfilment of that promise than which was first imaginable in fact the years seemed hardly to touch that serene and happy face the last time i heard him speak in public was at the institution for the blind near crystal palace in a memorable address to the large assembly of blind pupils and their friends he gave some of the experiences of blindness in his own case he said that the mental pictures produced by descriptions given or read to him were so vivid and realistic that he had many times referred to them as things that he had seen until he had afterwards found out that they had occurred after he was blind the address the simplicity with which it was delivered by his sweet and clear voice and the responsive smiles on those young faces represent a scene that remains in my memory as one of sublimity end of chapter twenty four part two reading by rolder london january twenty twelve